Today we'll be in the book of Matthew, and for our encounter with Christ, we will see a Gentile man who comes to the Lord Jesus Christ and asks him to heal his servant. Matthew chapter 8. Now this Gentile man is one of the Lord's sheep. He's one of those who Christ will die for shortly on Calvary's cross. And we will see that he's been granted faith to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's been granted faith to trust the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as we who are his people have been granted faith to believe on him and granted faith to trust him. And this same faith that the centurion has is the same faith we have. God's people all receive the same faith, right? It comes from God. It's a gift from God. But then it becomes our faith, doesn't it? It becomes ours. It becomes ours, beloved. We'll see that later on in the message. And we've been granted faith to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, the faith that God gave this centurion is the same faith that we have, beloved. Let's read our text. It's in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 to 13. Scripture declares, And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion besieging him. And saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus saith unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to this man, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh. And to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way, as thou hast believed, so, it, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in the same self hour. My. We see in verse 5 where this divine encounter took place. It took place in a town called Capernaum. Now Capernaum was a fishing village a small fishing village that was established during the, the time of Hasmarenus, located on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And the man who came to Jesus, we see here in our text, was a centurion in the Roman army. He was a man of authority. And he was a Gentile, beloved. He was a Gentile. In this he pictured God's elect among the Gentiles. God has a people among the Gentiles. We're living proof of that. 
Because we're Gentiles, beloved. Every one of us here. He also had a people among the Jews, didn't he? He had a people among the Jews and among the Gentiles, and they're one body. They're one in Christ. Now, a centurion was a man of authority in the Roman army. We clearly see in verse 9 of our text that he says this, for I am a man under authority, so he's been given some power. Having soldiers under me, and I say to this man, go, and he goeth, and to another come, and he cometh. And to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. Now, Roman soldiers obeyed their centurions. They didn't say, well, I don't think I want to do that, sir. Because the Roman centurion would carry a a vine, a wood vine, and if they disobeyed him, he'd smack them with it. They didn't want to get hit with that. And it wasn't a light hit when soldiers were out of line. These centurions were hard men. They were usually veteran soldiers. But here we see something's happened to this centurion. Oh, God in his grace and mercy has given this man faith to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Roman infantry, the centurions commanded a century of men, and these centuries were grouped in pairs to make up what's called a maniple, and a century typically composed of around 80 men. So he had about 80 men that he was in charge of, and there were six centuries forming what was called a legionary cohort. And the, the, the Roman legions were grouped into to cohorts commanded by one senior most centurion. Now, this man, we, I don't think he was the senior most centurion, but he might have been. But the senior most centurion was third in command in the whole legion. So the, the senior most centurion was a powerful position. But even a centurion was a powerful position. You have, you're responsible for 80 men under your command. And so we can see that he was a man of authority. And he tells us that in verse 9, doesn't he? That he's a man of authority. And this centurion, again, had soldiers under his charge. And he believed, he believed that Christ was able, that Christ had the authority to just command that his servant would be healed and he'd be healed. So, the faith that God had given this man, which is, I believe is true faith, believed in the power of God. Believed that Christ was God. That he had the authority to just say, you be healed and you're healed. Look again at verse 9. For I'm a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, go, and he goeth, and to another, come, and he cometh. And to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. He, his servant doesn't say, no, I'm not, I don't think I'm going to do that today, sir. No, not at all. What he's commanded to do, he does. Here's an example of one believing in one's authority. Here's a, here's a really neat illustration I found about believing in someone's authority. One day when Napoleon was reviewing his troops in Paris, he let the reins of his horse go. 
And the reins fell upon the animal's neck, and the proud horse just took off. Just took off. And before the rider could recover the bridle, a common soldier stepped out of the line and grabbed the reins of the horse. Grabbed the reins of Napoleon's horse and, and stopped the horse. And then placed the bridle in the emperor's hands again. And Napoleon said, much obliged, Captain. He was a foot soldier one second. And Napoleon said, much obliged, Captain. The man immediately believed what Napoleon said. And he says, of what regiment, sir? This is supposed to be a true story. Of what regiment, sir? And Napoleon, delighted with his quick perception that his word, in his word, replied, of my guards. And he rode away. As soon as the emperor left, the soldier laid down his gun, saying, he may take it, who will? And started for the company of staff officers, officers and so became the captain of Napoleon's guard. He believed what Napoleon had said. This centurion believed so much in Christ that he could just speak a word because he was a man of authority and he knew that Christ was a man. Of, he, he, God had given us some light, hadn't he? Of who he was. And he knew that Christ could just say, be gone, and immediately his servant would be healed. And the centurion was like this common soldier was with Napoleon. The centurion was like that with the Lord. He believed what the Lord could do. But this man, this centurion, is speaking to none other than the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He's speaking to God incarnate in the flesh. And he knows he's his servant. Because he's bowing to the God's authority, isn't he? He's bowing to Christ's authority and saying, you can just say anything you want and my, and my servant will be healed. In verse 5, we're told that the centurion came to Jesus Christ, our Lord, and besieged him to heal his servant. His servant's at home sick of the palsy. Now the word besieged there in the Greek means to call for, invite to come, send for, to call upon, to exhort, to admonish, to persuade, to beg. Please, Lord. Please save my servant. It also means to implore. Now the band of soldiers which the centurion had under his command was stationed in Capernaum because this is where his home was. This is where his garrison was. And at that time, many garrisons were set up along the seacoast by the Roman armies. They, they, would, they would break the legions up into, into cohorts and leave them in certain areas. Because then if there was a disruption, they had a whole, they had 80 men. And I'll tell you what, 80 Roman soldiers is, is a force. 80 Roman legionnaires is a force. They could take down anyone probably five or ten times their size. They were skilled. Brother Tom said at one time, they were the first professional army. 
And they were really good at what they did. And so they're stationed at Capernaum under a garrison, pointing for the protection of the towns because this is in Roman dominion, right? Rome has control of this area. Over in Luke, it says that this man, Luke chapter 7, verse 5, it says, For he loveth our nation, and he hath built a synagogue. This man, in the narrative in Luke, had built the synagogue for the Jews. Now, that would open him up to scorn, wouldn't it? He's a Gentile. He built the synagogue for the Jews, and no doubt he exposed himself by doing that. He exposed himself to hatred. He exposed himself to criticism. But the reason he loved that nation was that he embraced the worship of one God. He'd been given faith to believe. And before Christ healed the centurion's servant, God had healed the centurion. He'd healed them, hadn't he? By his stripes, we are healed. He's trusting in God. And isn't it interesting that the Jews, because he had built the synagogue, the Jews had good grounds for saying he was devout because now he's a worshiper of the one true God. And he believed on Christ and believed in the one true God is, is only in Christ. He would find favor with God. Only in Christ, who is the object of true faith, is he accepted by God. And think of this too in, in the, the narrative in Luke. It says he loved our nation and he built the synagogue. Isn't it amazing that the enemies of God are talking about one of God's elect? Because the Jews despise Christ. And yet they're, they're interceding for this man and saying, heal his servant because he loves our nation. He built us a synagogue. They're acknowledging that this Gentile possesses true faith. Now they thought it was because he built the synagogue, but he built the synagogue because he believed in the one true God. My oh my. And we see this man's servant was grievously tormented by palsy. Palsy is a loss of sensation or the power of motion in both or any part of the body. It can affect one whole side or it can affect the whole body where you lose motion. You lose motion. And this man was grievously tormented. And the infirmities included under the name palsy in the New Testament are various. The, they can mean a paralytic shock affecting the whole body or again affecting only one side. Also, this palsy could affect the whole body and the sufferer. The palsy would be in great pain and suffering. But note here in verse 7. Now, I'm telling you, I was looking at this narrative. And I saw something in here that I'd never seen before. And what a gem. What a gem, beloved. 
I've read this narrative many times. I actually really like it because you know, you, you all know I love history and reading about Romans, Roman history and all that. And so I'm drawn to passages like this. And I've never seen this. I've probably read this passage a hundred times. I've never seen this. <laughs> I'm going to share it with you. Look at Matthew 8, verse 7. And Jesus saith unto them, I will come and heal him. Take note of the answer. Look at these little words. And Jesus saith unto him, I will come and heal him. The answer is short, but yet it's so full, beloved. It's so full. It shows the readiness of Christ to do good. And how soon our great God complied with the centurion's request. He said, I'll go. I'll go. I will come and heal him. But take note of, of the promise within these words. Take note of this promise here. It's an absolute promise. It's an absolute promise. The centurion, right, had besieged Christ to heal his servant. He besieged him to heal his servant. And it's a prayer, a cry of faith, isn't it? And it's effectual, and it'll be heard. But this cry of faith doesn't come from any merit within the centurion. Do you know God answers our prayer according to his will, right? And according to his purpose. But take note of this wonderful promise, an absolute promise in this answer. Our Lord will heal the centurion's servant. He said this, I will come and heal him. He didn't say, I'll come and look at him. I'll come and help him as much as I can. Like any other doctor, another doctor would say, I'll come and help him. If I can. But look at the promise here. I had never saw this. Look at that. I will come and heal him. He's already pronouncing that the healing's going to be done. It's going to be done. He doesn't say, Well, I might heal him. <laughs> if I feel like it. No, he says, I will come and heal him. How quickly we can we can go over these things that are so precious. What a promise. And is this not what God promises to his own people? I'm going to heal you of all your sins. And he did it, didn't he? At Calvary's cross. And he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's a promise, beloved. Sometimes we feel like we're alone. He says, I'll never leave you. Other people might leave you, but I'm never going to leave you. And I'm never going to forsake you. I'm with you to the end. And then he takes us home to glory, doesn't he? Oh, my. But what a promise. This is an absolute promise of God. I will come and heal him. There's no doubt. <laughs> this is going to happen according to the divine purpose and will of God. Wonder of wonders. God can't lie, can he? God can't lie. And he's God incarnate in the flesh saying, I'm, I will come and heal him. 
It's done. <laughs> it's as good as done, isn't it? God cannot lie. This is an absolute promise from God incarnate in the flesh. And he says, I will come and heal him. So marvel. He didn't say, I'll come and see him. No. Didn't say that. Didn't say, oh, I'll just come and see him. No. We, we'd be kind and say, I'll come and pray for him. Right? He didn't say, I'm going to come pray for him. No. Because that's all we can do, right? All we can do is go and pray. That's all we can do. We can't heal anyone. We can't heal. We can't even heal ourselves from our sins. We can't heal anybody else from their sins. We can't heal anybody from sickness. Only God can do that if it be his will. But he says here, what a promise. I will come and heal him. God himself says, I'll come and heal him. I'll come and heal him. So here before us, we see both aspects of the God-man. Right? We see his compassion and his willingness to heal. He's, he's going right away. And then we see his authority and his power. And he says, I will come and heal him. That's our God, beloved. This is our Savior. This is the one who died for us. This is the one who cried, it is finished. It's done, beloved. Our salvation is complete. There's nothing for us to add. Not that we wouldn't want to, would we? Because we'd mess it up. No, it's complete. Here before us again is the tenderness of man and the power of God on full display. And these words come from the lips of he who has all power in heaven and earth. All power. None can stay his hand, the scripture says. Or say unto him, what doest thou? Think of that when you, when you read the scriptures and the Pharisees are throwing darts at them. They're saying that to the one who has all control. The one who is in charge of all the armies of heaven and all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing to him. And yet he has mercy on us. We who are his people. Oh, what a great God we have, beloved. And the scribes and the Pharisees and the people of Israel, they despised our king. They despised the Lord Jesus and his gospel. And here, this unnamed Roman officer this unnamed Roman centurion. His name doesn't really matter, does it? He's one of the Lord's sheep. Oh, he's one of the Lord's people. This unnamed Roman officer fully believed that the man standing before him was the Lord God, sovereign over all things. And he believed nothing was impossible with him. Look at verses 8 and 9. Again, we'll read it. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof. I'm not, even wor- I'm not even worthy to have you in my house, Lord. This man knows what he is. He knows he's a sinner. But speak the word only. Just, just speak the word, Lord. And my servant shall be healed. Well, the Lord already said, I will come and heal him. <laughs> he didn't hear that, did he? I'll come and heal him. And then he goes on, For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, Go, and he goeth. And to another, Come, and he cometh. And to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. 
So look at the precious view that this Gentile man had of Christ. These are views of Christ that are God-given. These are God-given views of Christ. He believed that Christ just had to speak a word and his servant would be healed. Because he believed that Christ had all power. God-given faith believes that, doesn't it? Now, sometimes we try to do things on our own. But we're soon reined back in, aren't we? (laughs) When we fall on our face. My, God's the only one who has power. And what comfort we see. What comfort for we poor sinful Gentiles here can we, that, that we can find. In Christ there's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither bond nor free. We're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. All of us. This man had God-given faith. And we see his first apprehension of Christ's power. He tells our Lord that it was unnecessary for Christ to come and see the patient. So he already believes Christ has all the power. Just say the word, Lord, and he'll be healed. What could manifest his belief of the Godhead more than this? By just saying, Lord, you, have, you just have to say a word. I'm a man under authority. I believe you have all authority. Just say the word. And we see this man also has a sense of unworthiness. God-given faith has a sense of unworthiness, doesn't it? That we don't, we're not worthy of the grace God bestows upon us. He says, don't even come under my roof, Lord. I'm not worthy to receive you. My, this man's been humble. And I'll tell you what, these centurions were proud guys. They were proud soldiers. Hard men. Something's happened to this man. And then we see that this man had God-given view of the exercise of Christ's power. As the soldiers under his command must come and go at his pleasure. So the whole army of diseases are under the control of Christ. And he believes this. What faith there must have been in this Gentile. With this in mind, let us look at verse 11 of this chapter. We will see that the same faith that this Gentile centurion had will be given to many more. That's you and I. That's all God's sheep. All through the ages, all around the world. Look what it says. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and from the west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. A people of every tribe, kindred, tongue, and nation all washed in the precious blood of Christ, all having been granted the same faith to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. All born again by the Holy Spirit of God. In this centurion, wholly trusted the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Oh, may God give us grace and strength to trust him that way too, eh? Like our dear brother. This is our brother in Christ here. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the great author of his faith, just as he's the great author of our faith. And he's the finisher of our faith too, isn't he? He's the finisher of our salvation. It's finished. There's nothing to do. We just look to Christ. Now, do we serve him? Absolutely. Do we hate sin? Absolutely. Do you sin more than you want to? Yes. But one day, praise be to God, I won't sin no more. And this centurion was a picture of God's elect among the Gentiles, of you and I as believers, who must be saved. Look at verses 10 and 11, and we see the centurion shows what a great and precious gift the gift of faith is. Look at these verses. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said unto them that fall, Verily I say unto you, I I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and the west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast into outer darkness and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, to believe Christ is to trust him. To believe Christ is to trust him. And faith is a rare and precious gift. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And if you have it, if you have true God-given faith, praise God for it. Give him all the glory. Praise his name that he gave it to you. Very few will forsake their own righteousness and trust Christ alone as our righteousness. Few will come to Christ trusting him alone to save them. Faith in Christ appears to be a small and insignificant thing in the eyes of the world. They look at us and wonder about us. But true faith worketh by love. It's the highest privilege. It's the greatest gift. Faith in Christ is the greatest gift, beloved, that God could ever give us. It's the rarest jewel. Remember Christ is called the pearl of great price? My. He's a treasure to his people. And we're treasures to him. We're jewels in his crown, beloved. So marvel at what's recorded here. Well, the scribes and Pharisees and the people of Israel despised the Lord Jesus Christ. This unnamed Roman officer fully believes that the man standing before him is God, is the Lord God, sovereign over all things, with whom nothing is impossible or difficult. And we see that by his words. And marvel at what is recorded here. Why do you think this fact is recorded by divine inspiration? Why did the Lord Jesus, who gave this man faith that he exercised, marvel at the display of it? Why has the Holy Spirit recorded this narrative in the Word? Well, it's not to emphasize the fact that true faith in Christ, is it, is it not to emphasize the fact that true faith in Christ is a personal thing? It's personal. 
It's personal. God gave the centurion faith. And he, as he gives it to us, he rejoices. He rejoices. And we rejoice. And we exercise that God-given faith, don't we? We exercise that. God gives us air to breathe, and we breathe the air. And it's our air when we're breathing it, right? Well, faith, when God gives you faith, he gives you faith, it's yours. It's not someone else's. It's a gift to you. Faith in Christ is not a notion or a doctrine or a principle. It's the heart confidence of every needy sinner who looks to Christ as his only Savior and then confesses that he alone is my Lord and my God. We did not confess that before the Lord saved us because we did not believe that. We did not have faith in Christ. But now that we do, we say, oh, he's my Lord and my God. And this faith which we have in Christ Jesus, our Lord, is God's gift to us. God's operation in us. He, he regenerates us, and then he gives us faith to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and he gives us repentance before God. Were you sorry for your sin before the Lord saved you? Why are you sorry now for your sin? Because God gave you repentance. Isn't that amazing? He gave you repentance before him. And this faith is given to we who are the people of God. And wonder of wonders, we see here in our text that faith is personal faith. And this faith has one object of worship. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And him alone. The Holy Spirit tells us plainly that the faith you have is by the grace of God. Turn, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Well, let's quickly look over uh, at chapter 2 before we go to Ephesians 1. Chapter 2, look at verse 8. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of it yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So this faith is given to us. It's a gift from God, and it's given to every believer. Now look what it says over in chapter 1. Verses 5. To 19. We're going to see here that this faith that God gives us is your faith. It's personal. Look what it says here. Having predestined us into the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith, yours, each of us, who believe have been given God-given faith. Your faith. God gives it to us. 
and it's ours. Your faith. Your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and love unto all the saints. Cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling, and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe. Do you, like the Philippian jailer, ask, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shall be saved. Do you believe on Christ? Give God all the glory if you do. Give him all the praise. Someone says, well, how much did you know when the Lord converted you? How much knowledge did you have of the doctrines of grace? And how much did you know about this? And how much did you know about that? Do you believe on Christ? Right? Not how much do you know? Do you believe on Christ? What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. It's not how much you know and you shall be saved, right? No. No. Because if the Lord saves you, you're going to grow in grace. My, oh my. How can I know that I'm saved? Answer this one question. Dost thou believe on the Son of God? Do you believe on him? The answer to that question is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shall be saved. Do you believe on him? Hallelujah, I believe on him. Yeah. Does not matter what you can answer except believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Well, but I don't know much. I don't know. I'm such a sinner. My sins are ever before me. It's, it's huge. It's so much. Surely God can't forgive me for all my sin. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shall be saved. Again, the, the only question that will be answered is, does thou believe on the Son of God? If you do, then salvation's yours, beloved. Salvation's yours if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And this centurion here is held before us as a picture of God's elect among the Gentiles who must be saved. God has a people out there. We know God's still saving his lost sheep. You know why? Because he hasn't wrapped it all up yet. When God saves that last sheep, it's all over, beloved. It's all done. When that last sheep of the covenant professes salvation in Christ, it's over. And only the Lord knows when that's going to happen. You hear people say this and that and this and that, just don't even pay attention to them. Only God knows when it's all over. Only God and God alone. Think of this again. 
And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and the west. We who believe are part of that many. Shall come from the east and the west. Shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. And there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All who reject Christ shall be cast out. And there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Think of all those Jews who, who believed they were, they were going to heaven because of what they've done. Because they were Jews. I'll tell you what, if God doesn't save you, you'll be lost eternally. And if God saves you, you're saved eternally. And what do we say to that? Oh, praise your mighty name, Lord Jesus. Praise your mighty name for having mercy upon me. Oh my. Look what the Lord says to this centurion in verse 18 to close out this narrative. And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way, and as thou hast believed, so it be done unto thee. And his servant was healed in that selfsame hour. My, oh my. I close with this. Do you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Scripture declares, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Praise the mighty name of Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy. Oh, thank you for mercy that you've had on 